And beloved, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 22. And he gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and with a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance, so that they were filled and became fat and delighted in themselves and in your great goodness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you for your great goodness to us. We thank you for the things that you have provided for not only us, but your people across the globe and across the eras. Father, I thank you for your mercies. And I thank you that even during times of trial and persecution, that you are faithful and that you indeed provide uh, those things that we need. Uh, so, Father, as we come before your word, I pray that that word would provide those things that we need in our spirits, that you would strengthen us, that you would fortify us, and that you would uh, encourage and even challenge and rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. And that you would use these words to build us up in our faith. And you would use these words if there are those listening that do not have faith. And that you would use these words to call them to faith as well. In all things you are glorified, and that you are honored, and you are proclaimed. Let us be part of doing that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Our text is dealing with the conquest of Canaan. And if you're thinking about the context in the context of that, uh, I would argue that the context of Canaan is, is one of those uh, portions of biblical history that is probably more highly contested than many other suggestions. And they, those con contesting those challenges really come from two fronts. First, that you have the liberals and the atheists who, who basically claim that archaeological finds do not support the account that Joshua gives uh, in, in his writings. And that thus, what we have here is kind of a metaphorical or a, a, a kind of superstitious or kind of um, uh, mythological accounting uh, of really something that was more localized uh, in, in its nature and not really a conquest. And so you get one angle that, that comes out. And the other angle is from those who are critics of biblical Christianity. This is the angle of theodicy, where, where they basically are appalled at the, the, the genocide that is commanded uh, by God um, of the Canaanite peoples. And um, they use this as a way to, to seek to somehow discredit God as a, a God of goodness. Their argument looks something like this. Their premise is to say that your God is loving and gracious and just. And we would say, yes, he is loving and gracious and just. Uh, 
And so their objection then would be, but that loving and gracious and just God commanded something that is not loving or gracious or just, a genocide. And so their conclusion is either God is schizophrenic or he is a monster of some sort and not the God that you describe in, in at least in the New Testament or at least in your Bibles. Now, all of these arguments are productive arguments to have. And we'll talk about them at least briefly. But sometimes when we get into the apologetic aspect of it, which is what this would fall into, we, we really miss the heart and the theme of Joshua. We spend so much time looking at ways to defend the text that we miss what the text is trying to teach us. And really, if you want to kind of boil down the theme of Joshua, you would th uh, boil it down to the idea of promise and dominion. That God had, pro had promised a, uh, a land for the people, and the people were taking dominion over that land. Something that is ultimately points to and is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And so, while I do want to briefly tackle some of those, those questions that come from liberalism and, and the question of theodicy, um, I want you to keep in mind the idea of promise and dominion and keep that in the forefront because really that's the heart of this text and it's something that is significant not only to what Nehemiah is doing in this prayer as the people are confessing and getting ready to re-enter into the covenant or renew the covenant, um, but also in terms of understanding Joshua as well. So the challenge of liberalism, or atheism, uh, basically it asserts that archaeology uh, points to something, then it's just a localized event. Usually what they say is something to the extent of the, the folks that lived out in the country got upset with the folks that lived in the cities. And there was an uprising, and the people who were in the countryside came in and they overthrew the people who lived in the cities. Now... I know it might be really hard to conceive of a context or a time where country folks might not be really happy with city folks and the way city folks choose to live. <laughs> Please notice my sarcasm there. But to the objection that they raise, let me say two things. First of all, the role of archaeology is not to create a pattern of history. The role of archaeology is to illustrate what we understand by history. Okay, what we need in terms of doing history, when history is really done and done well and done right, it really focuses far more on a comparison and a compilation of the ancient writings of those people who experienced that history in the first place. Or on terms of those people who knew those who experienced it. They look at, at, at historical documents, journals, letters, diaries, and other kind of original source material that is available. And they say, this is our basis. This is where we're starting from. I mean, think about it this way. If you're going to do a, a report in some battle in, or an essay or an article or whatever, in some battle that took place in World War II or in the Civil War or, or whatever major war that you might be interested in, in its history of. You know, and you go to the place to do some research and you do find some artifacts. You find some spent shells and some things along those lines where the battleground should have taken place. And then you find a box that is full of letters and correspondence between those soldiers and their family members. 
Which is more valuable? The box, the correspondence. That's how you do history. That's how biographies are written. That's how history is done. The things that you find, the artifacts that you find are valuable, but they're not the starting point. They're the things that are designed to, to illustrate, to help fill out those things that the letters, perhaps, written evidence does not necessarily fill in for you. We have firsthand experience, and we have firsthand records in of the conquest of Canaan, not only in the biblical account, but in extra biblical records and accounts as well. In addition, many of the archaeological finds support the biblical account of Joshua's conquests. For example, the biblical list of the cities that were present that Joshua was overthrowing matches the references of the cities listed in Egyptian documents, again, of the same time and of the same era. The invasion route that is listed in Numbers, uh, chapter 33, verse 50, was a heavily trafficked uh, route uh, of Egyptians during the late Bronze Age, again, something that is contemporary of the time. The archaeological evidence of Jericho suggests that the walls did collapse and fall down right around the mid-15th century or so, which is, again, historically about the time of the conquest. Joshua 3.16 mentions the city of Adam, uh, which is the place where, quote-unquote, God piled up the waters in a heap. And you need to understand that. The, the, spread, the spreading of the, of the, the river, uh, Jordan, did not, they didn't see where it stopped in front of them. It was miles up the road, if you will, or up the river up before where, where, where this city of Adam was because they passed through the, 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 the river uh, in front of Jericho. Interestingly enough, geological evidence records that there was a major earthquake uh, about that time in a subsequent mudslide. That area was common. It was not uncommon for those things to happen. And those mudslides would temporarily dam up the river and would allow for periods where one could pass through. Now, we would still say that God is superintending all of these things and working through those things, and it's not just kind of happen random happenstance, but at the same time, there is evidence to support that the Jordan River could have, would have been able to be crossed at that time. There is evidence of the destruction of the city of Hazor, uh, as well as an Egyptian scarab that was located in the area of the city of Ai, um, which, again, we know uh, from the Joshua account. And Mount Ebal, we know a little bit about them placing those altars up there. Uh, we find the place of worship uh, that dates back to Joshua's time wherein there is a chamber with bones. And the bones are bones of animals that would have been sacrificed on the altar. And interestingly enough, there are no animals like pigs that would be included in the unclean animals lists that are represented there, but simply animals of bulls, sheep, goats, and things like that. We can go on and on. My point is simply this. There is archaeological evidence. But the archaeological evidence is secondary, and it must always be secondary, to the events as recorded by those who witnessed the events themselves. As to the question that is brought about by the antagonists, 
those who, who want to talk about theodicy. I want to borrow the much-borrowed quote from Richard Dawkins, and I do that because Dawkins has become kind of the evangelist of atheism in our, in our culture today. Um, and he's, he's kind of um, taken the approach that, that Finney took uh, hundred and some years ago, but from uh, a very different starting point. He wrote of the God of the Old Testament in his book, The God Delusion, and the God of the Old Testament quote is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving, a control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestil, uh, yeah, yeah, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's the attitude uh, that many will take when they look at the Old Testament. Now, the statement itself is blasphemy. And we would, I think, safe to say within our context, say that. And it's coming from an atheistic perspective. That being said, put yourself in his shoes for a minute. He is looking at passages like that of Jericho, where God instructs the people to go in and put the city to the ban, killing every living thing that is found within it. And then asking the question, what would we say of somebody who did that today? What would we call that person who did the same thing today? We'd put that person in the same category as people like Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and Mao Zedong and all of those kinds of you know, horrific individuals. And he's saying, look, your God is doing the same thing. He's no better than any of that. So how do we deal with that question? I mean, liberals don't have the problem. Conservatives do. Liberals just say, well, it's just mythology anyway. We just learn, learn from, from the themes and, and the ideas. But if we're going to take the Bible as biblical inerrant truth, we're going to hold that it is plenary inspiration. In other words, that every word, every you know, grammatical structure is inspired by God, saying exactly what God is saying, then we have to answer the question, how do we handle passages like this? And again, it falls under the category of theodicy, the idea of, of defending the goodness of God in light of a fallen and a sinful world. I would suggest this is part of the answer. Now, we can, people write books and tomes on this kind of stuff, but at least as part of the answer in the context of Jericho, let me suggest this. That events is meant to be a sobering reminder of God's judgment that is to come upon the wicked. Vessels, to use Paul's language, that are created for destruction. It should stand as a reminder of the final judgment of God that is coming. And when Jesus returns, that judgment that will be enacted upon all of the earth where he redeems the elect and then utterly destroys the reprobates, in the fires of hell. It's what we sing about when we sing Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9, that he has blessed us with the privilege of participating in that. And also in Revelation chapter 2, 26 through 28, that those who overcome 
will be given that privilege of being able to rule with a rod of iron along with Jesus smashing those pottery vessels uh, that are made for destruction. God's justice really is that part of the answer may not be overly satisfying to everybody. Certainly not to an atheist like Richard Dawkins who basically thinks that everybody is basically good and nobody has the right to judge him because he has the right to make up his own morals. Isn't that convenient when you get to make up your own morals? You can do whatever you want. But it is an answer that is consistent not only with the text of Scripture, but is consistent with the character of a God who is not only just and loving and kind, but also is angry with sin and seeks to bring judgment upon, as a just God, upon those who break his law. It's an answer that speaks about the ideas of God's promise and dominion. God's promise in fulfilling what he promised to Abraham and preserving a people for himself but also the dominion, not just in the land of Canaan, the promised land for Israel, but it's something that points to Christ, the dominion of all of the earth that is given to Christ. Remember, the dominion mandate goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, and God gave that to Adam and his bride to, to take dominion over the earth. In the fall, Adam and Eve lost that privilege. But in Christ's coming... Christ, who is the second Adam, is given dominion over all of creation along with his bride, which is the church. In the meantime, in between when Christ fulfills that, then the church is called upon to take dominion into areas of our influence through the gospel of Jesus Christ, taking every thought captive to obedience of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4-6. through 6. I fear, though, that as we look around the world today, we have bought into, as a culture, this idea of a two-kingdom mindset, where there's the kingdom of God here that deals and exists in the life of the church, and there's the kingdom of the world here that is, exists entirely independently of the church. But that's not the way the Bible talks about Jesus. Christ reign is spoken of over all creation. In the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's Matthew 28, 18. When we get to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh trumpet is blown, and these words are pronounced. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Now, let me give you a side note. There are some people, theologically, that think that none of Revelation has happened yet. So the kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of Christ hasn't happened. There are others who think that it has happened completely yet. And so it is. And there are some that are kind of in the middle, that it's a, it's a progressive happening. We talk a lot about the book of Revelation. We talk about our, our eschatology. This is one of those areas where how you interpret your end-time theology is really important because it helps you understand the role of the church as we apply our theology to life and what we should be doing as the church as we engage 
engage the world around us. It is not just simply an esoteric study of, of end-time prophecies and we go, oh, you know, when's this going to happen? It's not about the when. Jesus says that's reserved away from us. But it's not what we're doing now that is really important, that our understanding of the other stuff informs. The reality is that the covenant promises of God to his elect are not just salvation and eternal life. We tend to focus upon that. But it is also eternal dominion over this world under Christ as our king and ruler with his law governing us. And so stepping back in light of that into our text, into Nehemiah, I think it's appropriate that Nehemiah, as they prepare to, to renew the covenants, as they, they prepare to, to uh, you know, kind of come before God in, in, in humility, but also to renew the blessings of the covenant, that they focus on this idea of promise and dominion uh, as it's foreshadowed in the conquest of, of Joshua of the promised land, completed in Christ, but foreshadowed. Uh, and they see themselves taking and entering into that. And I think that's the reason, it's a long in introduction, but that's the reason that this passage is so integral to this, this language here of confession before God, and this language that prepares them to enter into the covenant. So verse 22 uh, reads, And you gave them the kingdoms of the peoples, and allotted to them the boundaries. Some of our translations will... will uh, uh, translate that as the corners. The, 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 the Hebrew word that's used there refers to kind of the outer boundary lines of things. So this is a reference to the outer corners of the earth, or in this case, the outer corners of Israel. But when we get to Christ, it becomes the outer corners of the earth. And so we get to the, the commission that is given in Acts 1.8. We're going to take the gospel, and they take the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, the corners, as it were, uh, of the earth that, that is being spoken of, even, even back here in Nehemiah. The kingdoms and peoples should also look familiar to us in terms of that language. Again, that idea of making disciples of all of the nations. Okay? And so all of these things are, are integral to understanding what it is um, that, that um, is being spoken of here. It goes on to say, and so they took possession of the land of Sihon and the, the king of Heshbon, uh, the land of Og, the king of Bashan. Uh, verse 23, their children, you made as many as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land which you said to their fathers to possess. In, Abraham, in Genesis uh, 12, verses 1 through 3, God gave a promise to Abraham to make his children into a great nation. So this, is, again, is a, a recapitulation of that idea. In chapter 15 of Genesis, verse 5, he even builds upon that idea and says, your children will be numbered as the stars of heaven. This is picking up on that language here that is, that is talking about the numbers of the children of Abraham uh, that are being fulfilled in God's promise to Abraham. And I also want you to note well the language of who brought the people out of the out of the out of the, the land of Egypt and into the promised land. It wasn't Moses that is given credit, and it's not uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt that is given credit. It's God who is given credit. 
God and only God could have ever brought the people out of their captivity and into the promised land, just as it is only possible for God to draw one to Christ Jesus. That's John 6.44. The people of Exodus fled Egypt, but that fleeing of Egypt is a picture that is going to be fulfilled of us fleeing our sin and being brought into the church something that is entirely God's work in our lives and not necessarily our own. Verse 24. So the sons went in and they possessed the land. And you, it's a reference to God, subdued. That word subdued um, translates in, in the Hebrew to humble, to bring somebody to their knees. It's, it's dominion language once again. It's, it's not necessarily a, a you know, Let's just sit there in a subdued way. But it means to physically, forcefully subdue somebody. The inhabitants of the land that was before them, and the Canaanites, you gave into their hand. Notice again, God's doing the work. You gave them into their hand. And the kings of the people in the land, uh, you gave them, and I love this language, to do their pleasure with. In other words, they had dominion over them. Dominion is not just a matter of we've got to be good stewards. That's part of stewardship is part of dominion. But part of dominion is that we are, are is it meant to communicate the idea of, of forceful control over something. So something that is rebelling is forcefully the rebellion is forcefully quelled. That's dominion. And so we get to verse 25. They captured cities and rich lands Houses that were full of good things and cisterns that had already been dug and vineyards and orchards and, and fruit trees and were abundant and all good things. And so they ate and were fulfilled and delighted in the Lord and the, uh, delighted in the land and the great goodness of God. This beloved is dominion. Exercise in part on this earth in the promised land but will be exercised in full in the new creation when Jesus comes again. The Israelites drove the wicked, the Canaanites, out due to their sin. And then eventually, the Israelites would be driven out themselves due to their sin. The beauty of the new creation is that we will be brought in by the fullness of Christ and that we will never be cast out. Jesus is the greater Joshua. Joshua brings them into the earthly promised land. Jesus, Yeshua, same name, uh, brings us into, to establish his dominion in the new creation. We're in between times. And so we are called to do those things in this life uh, that are designed to, to, to make this world as much like that dominion as possible, to prepare it, as it were, by making disciples of all the nations. I'm going to close with two exhortations. The first, knowing that we are called to take dominion, are you living like it? Are you living like those who have been called to take dominion and who will have dominion? There's a certain competence that comes with that reality. There's a certain boldness that should come with that reality. And sometimes I don't think the church really lives it out that way, with that kind of confidence and boldness that we ought to have. 
Second exhortation is this. The very last line of verse 25, the last clause there, I think is really important and oftentimes gets kind of brushed over. God gives them all of these good things in the land to satisfy them, and they're satisfied in those good things. But it doesn't end there. It also says that God, that they're satisfied in the great goodness of God. Do we really live like that? Because I would argue that the things of this world, you know, the, the satisfaction of the, land, the stuff of the land, only makes sense in light of being satisfied in the goodness of God. And if you're satisfied in the goodness of God, then when some of those things in the land don't happen to show up the way you might like them to, it's okay, because you're finding your satisfaction in the one who's ultimately satisfying. C.S. Lewis used the illustration of first things and second things. First things are the things of God, second things are the things of the world. Our tendency is to put second things first. Lewis's argument is when we put second things first, though, we lose first things, and we never end up really appreciating the second things. He says, we've got to put first things first. We've got to put the pursuit of God first in our lives. Then God gives us the other stuff, and we end up gaining both, but only if God is the one we find our satisfaction in, ultimately. My encouragement, my exhortation to you, is to think that through and live like it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word and its challenges to us. We thank you for your promises and uh, we thank you that those promises are, are rich and deep and full. We thank you that you have ultimately given dominion to your son because we make a mess of things. Um, but Father, I pray knowing that while that dominion has not been realized in full yet, may we as your church participate in the process that you uh, would have worked in this world. So Father, I thank you for your goodness and your grace. I thank you for this time that we might worship you. And I thank you for your word that governs us and directs <coughs> us. The word of Christ Jesus himself. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you and may he keep you. May he make his face to shine as a light upon you and may he be gracious to you. May he turn his countenance, his affections in your direction. May he grant you shalom. Amen.